Hello everyone, welcome back to the Fearless Flyer. I'm James and joining me as always is Grant. Yes, hello everyone. Welcome back to Series 3 of the Fearless Flyer. Series 3, we're calling Insights. It's the series that's going to take you behind the scenes of historical individual aircraft accidents and incidents, whereby we explore them, the valuable lessons learned from these events that was pivotal at the time to improving aviation safety. In essence, these events of the past have led to the industry we know today, a highly regulated and safety-conscious form of transport. Yep, that sounds good, James. Um, We'll finish up with what pertinent issues that are going on in the industry at the moment. Today, we delve into a story that highlights the importance of historical incidents. Just one of the many from the past which has played a role in contributing to how safe the aviation industry is today. (laughs) So don't overfasten your seatbelts and let's not dive right in. But how about we transitioning cautiously? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so our story begins on the early evening on Sunday, the 26th of October, 1952, when a British Overseas Airways Corporation, or BOAC for short, BOAC flight number 110 was departing from Rome Campino in Italy as part of a second sector of three sectors, with the flight originating from London, with its final destination being Johannesburg. The aircraft was a Comet, the very first generation of jet aircraft proudly designed and manufactured by de Havilland in Great Britain. Yeah, and on board were 35 passengers and eight crew members, undoubtedly all were looking forward to their journey. Little did they know that that evening, this flight would be the first jet passenger aircraft to be involved in the accident and that everyone on board would live to tell the tale. Yep, that's good, but... Before we continue with the story, we must understand what the Comet really was to the aviation industry. It was the very first commercial jet aircraft to be used in passenger service, a unique and incredible piece of engineering for its day. It was going to revolutionise aviation. It could fly faster and it could fly well above all the weather that propeller aircraft had to endure back in those days. Now, most of us with an avid interest in aviation will only remember the Comet as an aircraft that suffered from a number of catastrophic failures whilst flying. And in the next episode, in essence, part two of the Comet story, we'll be looking at these. But for now, let us return to the story of a Sunday evening in Rome. Okay, so the aircraft was registered Golf Alpha Lima Yankee Zulu. And with 43 people on board, it was lined up on runway 16, 16 being the designated runway as it was orientated on a heading of approximately 160 degrees on a compass. The flaps were set at 15 degrees. All the pre-takeoff checks had been completed and everything was in order as it should be for this takeoff. BOAC flight number 110 was given permission by the tower to take off. Full power was applied, and all the engine instruments were in the normal range with the power set. The brakes were released, and off they went, accelerating down the runway. The acceleration was normal, and at a speed uh, indicated around 75 to 85 knots, the nose wheel was lifted from the runway. At the same time, there occurred a tendency for the aircraft to veer to the right, but this was corrected by the pilot. Now, the reports we've read 
state this regarding the nose lifting off the nose at this speed 75 to 85 knots yeah i'm not sure whether the nose lifted by itself but both reports say it was lifted and this would imply some sort of pilot input so i'm going to assume that there was an initial pilot input to lift the nose a little at this speed of 75 to 85 knots anyway back to the takeoff at an indicated airspeed of 112 knots the captain then lifted the nose of the aircraft off the ground by a backward movement on the control column. Remember, this action forces the tail down, which in turn pitches the nose up to the climb attitude. When the captain had estimated that the aircraft had reached a safe height, he called for the undercarriage to be retracted. All seems pretty straightforward, right? Yep, yep, that does seem right. So before the co-pilot had time to even put the undercarriage up, the left wing suddenly and violently dropped and the aircraft swung around to the left. The pilot put the correct input in to get the wings back level, but the aircraft was now not accelerating. There was now a buffeting which is normally associated with the stall. That is, the airflow of the wings has broken away and become disrupted. Correct control inputs by the captain did not remedy the situation, and as a result, the aircraft descended back to Mother Earth and came back down still on the main extended wheels, and it bounced. It was evident to the captain that there was no acceleration, and he was of the opinion that he'd probably encountered some form of an engine issue. With the runway end rapidly approaching, he took the wise decision to abandon the takeoff. The captain closed the throttles as the aircraft took out a mound of dirt. Then the undercarriage was torn off the aircraft. It then ploughed over rough ground for around 810 feet, or 245 metres, before coming to a stop. A large pool of fuel leaked out, but luckily there was no fire. All the people on the aircraft walked away unscathed, with only one person receiving a slight cut to the hand. The post-accident report stated that The accident was due to an error of judgment by the captain in not appreciating the excessive nose-up attitude of the aircraft during the takeoff. So in my humble opinion, nowadays, that would be only one of the many contributing factors to this accident. We must take into account that this type of aircraft was not only brand new, but the technology at the time and understanding of aerodynamics, etc., was very primitive compared to what we have nowadays. But the story of the failure to take off for the new comet does not finish here at the end of Rome Campino's Runway 16. Just over four months later, on Tuesday the 3rd of March, 1953, in the very early hours of the morning, another comet takeoff was to go wrong, this time with disastrous consequences for all on board. This comet was named Empress of Hawaii and was being operated by Canadian Pacific Airline on a delivery flight from Great Britain to Sydney, Australia. The flight crew had just completed comet jet conversion and were then tasked with taking this aircraft to Sydney with multiple stops en route. This particular sector had the comet taking off from Karachi in Pakistan en route to Singapore performing a nighttime takeoff. In addition to the five crew members on board, there were also six de Havilland engineers on board as well. 
the additional purpose of this flight was to show the aircraft off to potential buyers in Asia and Oceania. There were no fair-paying passengers on board the Comet, which was registered as Charlie Foxtrot, Charlie Uniform November. Does anything stand out to you at the moment on this takeoff, James? Uh, probably uh, a lack of experience on the type of aircraft, uh, as well as like a lack of sort of visual reference being night. Yeah, the night takeoff is an issue. And yes, you're right. Neither pilot had experienced a night takeoff or a takeoff in a heavyweight aircraft, as this would be the case for this particular sector. During the takeoff, the pilot raised the nose at 85 knots, which we discussed in the previous accident. So it did seem like the procedure was to raise the nose a little. At this stage, he should have levelled the aircraft, which I assume meant don't raise the nose any more than this initial little bit. But he kept on raising the nose. Yeah, he did. And now as the nose was quite high, drag increased a heck of a lot, which in turn meant that the acceleration had slowed down significantly. He must have realised this nearing the end of the runway. The pilot then brought the nose down, but it was too late for the aircraft to reach the correct takeoff speed. As a result, the aircraft ran off the runway. The right-hand wheel went over the perimeter drainage ditch and caused the comet to swerve into a dry canal at a speed of around 120 knots or 220 kilometers per hour. The comet then impacted a 40-foot or 12-meter high embankment on the far side of that canal. As a result, all on board perished. This was the very first passenger jet aircraft involved in a fatal accident. So the post-accident report stated that the nose was lifted too high during the takeoff run. This led to a partially stalled wing and thus excessive drag. Therefore, it did not permit the normal acceleration to take place which prevented the aircraft from becoming airborne in the prescribed distance. Yeah, the pilot appeared to have realised this and took corrective action, but it was too late. Now, we have some things called contributing factors, and in this case here, these being very low experience on the Comet and a night takeoff in a heavily loaded aircraft. The report concluded with this statement on these conditions. The circumstances required strict adherence to the prescribed takeoff technique, which was not complied with. Now, these two accidents were only four months apart, but had many similarities in both cases. What is tragic about the Karachi accident is lessons from the first accident in Rome do not have appeared to be passed on to the poor Karachi crew in their training, which could have prevented the Karachi crew from getting themselves in this situation. I'm curious now, how do you do the takeoff, like the initial rotation in your 777? We accelerate down the runway and at a pre-calculated speed to lift off the runway, the pilot not flying in the 777 course uh, rotate. If I was pilot flying, I'd pull back on the control column and raise the nose off the runway in one continuous motion. And we're aiming to raise the nose at a pitch rate of about two and a half degrees per second and pitching the nose to around a 15 degree nose up attitude. And then we're aiming to fly a pre-calculated target speed of V2 to V2 plus 15. And therefore, we then adjust the nose pitch attitude of the aircraft to obtain this. And if, say, we're quite light, we might need to pitch the nose up some more and 
And conversely, if we're very heavy, we might need to then fly lower than this initial 15 degrees pitch attitude. Nice. Okay, <laughs> so continuing here. As in any accident, it's always easy to blame the pilot. After all, they were the ones ultimately manipulating the direction of the aircraft. Further testing following these two incidents revealed that the comet's wing design could experience a loss of lift at high angles of attack, and the angle of attack is basically the difference between the airflow coming at the aircraft and the angle of the wing to that airflow. So in this case, the nose pointing high up on the takeoff, but the aircraft still going along the runway with its main landing gear still on the runway. So the wing's leading edge uh, was redesigned to allow for a bit of droop and wing fences were added to stop the spanwise flow, which meant that the airflow had a tendency to turn toward the outer part of the wing. These were to be extremely valuable lessons in the early days in jet design. But let us take a look at what the Comet really was to the aviation world. World War II saw some mighty technological developments, with the jet engine arriving in the War Theatre towards the end of the war. And my adopted grandfather, he was a Spitfire pilot based in England, and I recall him saying the first time him and his mates saw a jet coming flying over their airfield at low level, that kind of freaked them out a bit. He said it was really noisy and damn fast, and they were all looking at each other wondering where the propeller was. They were completely perplexed at what they'd just seen. During the war, the United Kingdom cabinet in 1943 were thinking about the transport needs after the war. They formed a committee called the Brabazon Committee. One of the recommendations was to build a pressurised transatlantic mail plane that could carry 1,000 kilos or 2,200 pounds of payload at a cruising speed of 640 kilometres an hour or 400 miles an hour without stopping for fuel. As a result, the de Havilland Company thought that this was a good idea, but Sir Geoffrey de Havilland, being quite the visionary, challenged the current view that jet engines were way too fuel-hungry and unreliable. Sir Geoffrey de Havilland used his influence to inject more expertise into the development of this new jet engine thing. Yeah, the jet engine enabled much higher speeds, higher altitudes at which to fly, but these new engines love fuel, lots and lots of fuel, and they weren't very efficient at all. So initially, in a transport role, there seemed to be little to no future other than in military jets. But technology was changing, and our man Sir Geoffrey was clearly a visionary. So in 1945, de Havilland was awarded the contract to develop such a flying machine, and the design went through many permutations and alterations. Remember, this was completely new technology. None of the computer design and modelling that is available today was available then. Yeah, jet engine design was in its infancy, but in September 1947, a design called the Comet had been finalised with these new fandangled engines placed into the wing route, basically where the wing attaches to the fuselage. Another new feature that was implemented into the design was powered flight controls, and this was due to the fact that aerodynamic forces would be much more due to the speeds that the aircraft would be flying. Powered flight controls had the effect of making the flying controls easier to manipulate. From 1947 to 1948, they tested the heck out of the comet's structure, systems, and performance. And on the 27th of July, 1947, 
the first ever passenger aircraft took to the skies on a short 31-minute test flight under the command of Captain John Catsai Cunningham, a famous World War II night fighter pilot. Yeah, and the second prototype was produced in 1950, and from April 1951, it was used by BOAC to carry out 500 hours of flight crew training and route proving. Now, this 500 hours crew training would have been shared amongst many crews, and I doubt there would have been a simulator back in the 50s, and if there was, it would have been very basic. We also have no knowledge of the training requirements back then, but Based on the fact that the second accident in Karachi, the crew never had any exposure to night flying or a heavyweight takeoff, it would seem to me that their training was very basic compared to the requirements for flying in today's airlines. Now, in defence of the systems back in the 50s, investigations were time-consuming, as they are today. However, in today's modern world of aviation, the International Civil Aviation Organisation, or ICAO, states a preliminary report must be submitted within 30 days of an accident or incident. Now, the standards and practices for aircraft accidents were first adopted by ICAO on the 11th of April 1951 and were designated as NX-13 to the Convention. There have been 13 amendments since the document up until 2022. So we can't say whether in the earlier days that there was a requirement to have a preliminary report issued within 30 days. However, I somewhat doubt that. Yeah, maybe that's true. And aviation was evolving rapidly uh, back then, I'm sure much faster than what the regulatory bureaucracy was able to keep up with these changes. For example, in today's world, artificial intelligence development is well ahead of the government's or legislators' ability to make policy and therefore they're scrambling to keep up with this rapidly evolving technology, but I digress. So, we had two accidents of a similar nature, and it would seem a tendency to over-control the aircraft, but why? Was it lack of training? Would probably definitely be one of the reasons. And in today's modern world of flying, simulators are used extensively for training, Not only are they much cheaper, but if a student does something crazy, you don't write an aircraft off. But there is one thing that was overlooked, and that is instrumentation of the day. Yeah, um, we use an instrument called an artificial horizon indicator. Could you kind of like give us an analogy for that, James? Yeah. So this instrument can be sort of likened to you driving over rough terrain, looking out your vehicle window. As you go up a hill, you get more sky in your window. And as you go down a hill, you get less sky. Say if you went sideways on a hill, the sky and land would be at an angle whilst you're looking out of your window. And this is sort of what it shows. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So in today's modern instrumentation, the artificial horizon has markings which show blue for the sky and brown for Mother Earth. The instrument also shows the pilot how many degrees we are banking in a turn. And it also shows how many degrees the nose is pointing up or down. However, back in the comet days, the artificial horizon was extremely basic. It was all black with a little white aeroplane figure in the middle, which represented the aircraft that you're sitting in, and a white line which represented the horizon. No other markings whatsoever. So it was very basic. So taking off at night, it was purely guesswork as to how much 
the nose had pitched up without using other instruments to build up a picture. So it was clear that the results of the investigations of these two accidents ultimately had the desired effect, and that the awareness of over-rotating on takeoff would cause issues in that the aircraft's acceleration would be degraded, or worst case scenario, a stall would ensue. Yep, and by virtue of this known issue, more training was likely given in this particular area. As a result, there were no more hole losses on the Comet associated with overtating on takeoff. The industry had learnt a new and valuable lesson, unfortunately at the behest of lies lost, but it was not to be repeated. And if you want more information about the fundamentals of this event and how the industry has evolved, listen to our first series, specifically Episode 5 on Basic Controls. Episode 21 on instrumentation, and episode 23 on pilot training. But the Comet story and the harsh lessons from this new technology unfortunately does not end here. And in the next episode, we will discuss the Comet's structural issues and how it was a pivotal lesson to every manufacturer of the aircraft in the world who were about to embark on developing pressurized jet aircraft. So we thought we'd just finish off these episodes just with a bit of current affairs as such in aviation. So as of June 2023, this is just one of the prevalent issues in the aviation industry at the moment. Uh, so I guess we could have a quick chat then on close calls sort of that are occurring at the moment in the news surrounding aircraft taking off and landing, specifically in the US. Uh, you've yeah. probably seen it on the news. I was uh, landing in Boston last week and there was a plane in front of me and uh, we were cleared to land at about 10 miles out, even though the plane in front of me hadn't landed. And that only happens in the US. I think the rest of the world, we are only cleared to land once the runway is clear. But the US has this thing called anticipated separation and basically they can clear planes to land even if there's someone on the runway that hasn't even started their takeoff or someone in front of me that hasn't even landed yet it's to do with reducing frequency congestion but it just seems to be causing some really close calls and i don't know whether it's busy or what's going on there but um, i don't think it's really necessary giving a clearance to land when the runway is in fact not clear or there's someone else landing in front of you i, I just think it's pushing it a little bit yeah, and I think uh, it's lucky we've got all the technology we have today because um, if uh, we didn't have the technology nor bad weather in some of these incidents, they might have not ended so positively. Maybe if it's all gin clear and it's nice weather, it might be a good idea. But there was an incident a while ago in low visibility operations where a plane was cleared to land, a cargo plane, and there was one on the runway cleared to take off, but they were very slow at taking off. And as a result, when they got airborne, there was a very close call as the landing plane actually went round. Maybe they want to stop doing this if the weather's a little bit inclement and only do this anticipated separation when it's perfectly clear. Yeah. So anyway, that's what's going on in the industry at the moment. And the US authorities are looking closely at these close calls that are happening there. And uh, hopefully they'll implement something that will lead to a reduction in them. Yeah, I think the trouble with the industry is, especially some of these large airports that you mentioned, Boston, and I think the other one that happened at JFK was mm. the one that was in the news recently. But these are airports that are so heavily slot-restricted, and they're just trying to find ways of maximizing 
the amount of aircraft they can get in, but they need to yep. think of the safety before yep. maximizing the stuff. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That San Francisco had one recently where a plane was coming into land and the other ones on the ground hadn't taken off and they were told to go around twice, which was highly annoying. You don't really need to be going around twice because uh, air traffic control has messed up. When you're landing, you generally haven't got that much fuel. Yeah. Anyway, that aside, that's about it for today. So let's uh, let's finish up here. Well, that's it for episode sort of one of series three, looking into some aviation insights. Join us in the next episode, uh, which is sort of a part two uh, into the Comet Saga. Yep. But as we conclude this episode, it's important to remember that every aviation accident serves as a catalyst for change. By learning from past incidents, the aviation industry continuously strives to improve safety standards ensuring that passengers and crew today can travel with confidence. So until then, stay safe, happy flying. And from me, thank you very much to your ears for listening. And from James. Have a good day, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this first sort of episode looking into aviation insights. Goodbye.